We are proceeding along in our Sabbath School quarterly studies this quarter with God's mission, my mission. We're on lesson number nine, and in lesson number nine, the authors present a variety of people from different backgrounds, different cultures, some in the Old Testament, some in the New Testament, that come to Christ and the different ways they come to Christ. Each of these people are quite powerful, quite wealthy, quite influential. And studying their lives and seeing what Jesus did in their lives gives us incredible encouragement. Our memory text, Matthew 16, verse 26 says, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? That divine priority. You know, somebody said once, it's not wrong to have riches, but it is wrong if riches have you. It's not wrong to have wealth, but it is wrong if your wealth has you. In other words, God used wealthy people throughout the Bible. You take Abraham, for example, a very wealthy man. God used him powerfully as an influence for the kingdom of God. So there's nothing really wrong with wealth. Many people get that have that misunderstanding. It's how you use what God has put in your hand, whether you use it predominantly selfishly for yourself or whether you share of those riches with others to bless the very work of God. Um, it points out in our lesson that in the, in the second paragraph, first day, God is as concerned about the salvation of rich and the powerful as he is of the weak and the needy. Scripture provides some gripping examples of Bible characters who were powerful or rich or both and how God used them to be a blessing to the nations. And it names them. I mentioned Abraham, but then there's Isaac, Job, Solomon, Joseph of Arimathea. You look at these people, or Nicodemus was extremely influential in the Jewish empire and among the Sanhedrin. So you see people who are rich, powerful, but are using their wealth and influence for God. The first day's lesson in our, really our Bible study on Sunday is entitled, simply entitled Nebuchadnezzar. And it directs us to Daniel chapter four. Now Daniel four is a fascinating chapter in the book of Daniel because it's the only chapter in the book of Daniel not written by Daniel, it's written by Nebuchadnezzar. And it's almost, as if Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, says, wait a minute now, it's my turn, let me speak. And when a Babylonian king wants to speak, you let him speak. But Nebuchadnezzar is a different man. He's been transformed by the grace of God. Uh, He's been changed powerfully by God's grace. Daniel has witnessed to him. He's opened his heart to the true God. Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. You know, I have to smile at that. Here is the warrior, Nebuchadnezzar, who's attacked Jerusalem and overthrown it. Nebuchadnezzar, who's been through many bloody battles and seen people slaughtered. He says, peace be to you. Why? He was changed in his heart. Here is an example of a powerful ruler who was changed by the grace of God. He said, I thought it good, verse 2, to to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs, how great are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, his dominion from generation to generation. So Nebuchadnezzar says, I want to give my testimony. I want to share 
what God has done in my life. And he tells the story in chapter four of a dream of this great tree with all the birds of the air nesting in the branches, with all the animals underneath the branches. And then a divine decree comes forth and the tree is chopped down and there's just a stump left. And there's a band of brass and iron. You know, in the Bible, brass represents salvation and iron represents divine authority. You remember, Jesus is going to rule with a rod of iron. So, and, and the laver in the sanctuary was made of, of brass or bronze uh, where you're cleansed or washed. It's a symbol of salvation. So the stump of the tree representing Nebuchadnezzar is left. But Jesus Christ, the one who saves and the one who has ultimate authority will preserve that stump again. When we fail, when we lie by the wayside, discouraged and disappointed, there is still the band of iron and brass. There's still the saving power of Christ that reaches out to us and the divine authority of Jesus that'll restore us to our position. Nebuchadnezzar sits on a throne with a royal diadem upon his head, with royal robes upon him, but his tree, his authority, his dominion over that nation is chopped down. And Nebuchadnezzar wanders like a beast. In medical literature, it's called lycanthropic insanity. It's an insanity that comes upon a person very quickly. You find it in Dordalen's Medical Dictionary. And as it comes on, a person perceives himself to be a cat, perceives himself to be an animal. They crawl around on their knees, their hands and knees grunting and groaning. It is the neglect of personal hygiene. They let their nails grow long, hair grow long. Uh, No concern at all about uh, their appearance. Uh, Long hair, grunting, groaning. You know, you look out in the fields if you're in Babylon and say, who's that out there? Well, that's the king. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, who sat on a royal throne. Nebuchadnezzar wore the royal diadem. Yeah, that's him. He's out there. Out there? He looks like an animal. He wanders there for seven years. And then there's a remarkable Bible text. It's found in Daniel chapter 4. And it says that um, verse 27, Daniel 4, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto you. That's what Daniel was explaining in the interpretation of the dream to the king. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. In other words, God says, I'm giving you a chance. After the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in the interpretation of Daniel, God gave him still one year. But at the end of that year, in arrogance, he says, is not this great Babylon that I've built? He's proud. He's arrogant. He falls, wanders around like this beast. The kingdom is departed from him. But verse 34, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever and ever. Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of that seven years, recognized the authority of God. He looks up into heaven. His sanity is returned. He has now the mental acumen, the mental processes he had before. 
He returns to his throne. I wonder who took care of his throne, who protected the throne for those seven years. If I had to guess, I'd guess it would be Daniel. But he returns to his throne, Nebuchadnezzar does. He has a royal diadem again on his head, royal robes, and he reigns on the throne as king. You know, the story of Nebuchadnezzar is your story. It's my story. We were created high and holy by a loving God. We lost our robes of righteousness as we fell. Adam and Eve lost theirs in the garden. Every one of us have sinned. We wandered around like the beasts. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But then we look to heaven. Uh, Acts 4, verse 12, There is no other name under heaven whereby we might be saved except the name of Jesus. And Christ restores us to our rightful place. We now become sons and daughters of God. We have that royal blood running through our veins again. And we're exalted and sit on the throne again with him as divine royalty. But here's the point of Sunday's lesson. Nebuchadnezzar, this heathen king, comes to Christ. God allows the judgments to come on Nebuchadnezzar, so Nebuchadnezzar would turn to him. God would have much much preferred reaching Nebuchadnezzar without those divine judgments. But sometimes God has to, if I can say it this way, slap us in the face. He has to get our attention with a divine slap of circumstances in our lives. But the point of the matter is that God reached Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel, through visions, dreams, supernatural methods, but God reached him. And someday you and I will see Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel arm in arm walking down those streets of gold. Nebuchadnezzar will say, Daniel, I took you captive, but I was the one captive, captive to arrogance and pride. But through you and the divine providence of God, I was reached. Those wealthy people around you who don't know Christ can be reached. But then we go to Monday's lesson with Naaman. Now, Naaman's story is quite different. Naaman has developed leprosy. He's the servant of the king of Syria. There's a little captive maid that is brought from Israel as a captive to serve in the household of Naaman. Now, the thing that impresses me about this story is that this little maid was not bitter. She was not resentful. She was not angry. She was one who ministered. When she heard that Naaman had leprosy, she went and encouraged her mistress there, the one that was in charge of her, Naaman's wife, really encouraged her to urge Naaman to go to the prophet in Israel. Finally, Naaman gets permission from the king of Syria. The king of Syria sends letters in. Naaman goes, and uh, Elijah won't see him. And uh, as he goes there, it, it's quite a, a remarkable story of how he, he's pretty much in a huff. He's pretty angry. Let's turn in our Bibles here to 2 Kings chapter 5 and see the reaction of Naaman as he comes to the prophet of God. 2 Kings, we're looking there at chapter 5. So the maid encourages him to come. He gets permission. He comes to Elisha. 
And uh, it says in 2 Kings 5, she says to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who's in Samaria, he would heal him of his leprosy. And so finally he goes. He comes with all this money, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing. He brings a letter to the king of Israel and says, my master will reward you. And uh, Elisha hears that the king of Israel is uh, in mourning because this man has come and uh, the king can't heal him, of course. So Naaman uh, goes with his uh, horses to the house of Elisha. And Elisha says to him, go and wash. This is verse 10, 2 Kings 5. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. Now, Naaman is angry. He's, the Bible used the word furious. And he leaves in a huff. I'm not going to wash in that river. I expected some divine, miraculous cure. I expected something like fire to come down from heaven and cure me. I'm not going to that river. And uh, his servant says to him, look, If you were told to do some hard thing, you would have done it. You've come all this way, at least go to the river. So he goes to the river, dunks once, nothing happens. Twice, nothing happens. Three, four, five, six. Seventh, he drunks and he comes up and he's perfectly clean. Comes back to Elisha. He says, I want to give you all these gifts. Elisha says, forget it. I don't want any of the gifts. I'm a servant of God. Naaman, from a heathen nation, has his need met. He sees the miraculous power of God. He senses the godliness in Elisha, who doesn't take any bribes. And here, Naaman becomes a worshiper of the true God. But yet he still has some of these heathen ideas. So he says he makes a couple requests. His first request is, let me take two packs of, uh, two basketfuls of, of soil from Israel. Let me take it back to my land. Why do you want to do that? Because he thought there was something holy about Israel. He could take the soil back and maybe kneel on it. That's a holy place. Second, he says, my king that I have to go serve is a worshiper of Rimon, the god of Syria. And I'm going to have to go into the temple with him. I can't refuse to do that, but, but I'm not going to bow down. Elisha says, go in peace. Now, Elisha is not endorsing this idea of the holiness of the the ground. He's not endorsing worship in the temple. This man wasn't going to worship anyway. He was just going to go in there uh, with his his master. But here's what Elisha recognizes. And I think it's an important soul-winning lesson. That people come to Christ, they come to worship God, but they may take time to to overcome false concepts and false ideas. I think... There are a couple of lessons that, at least for me, come out of the story of Naaman. One, God uses simple methods to reach people. Incidentally, also, when you think of the healing methods of Christ, they're often simple. Sunshine, fresh air, water, a good diet, trust in God, exercise. You know, those are the principles of Jordan. Seven times he washes in there as an indication of trust in God. And God has very simple ways that he often brings about physical, mental, and spiritual healing. The other lesson is this, that I learned from this, and that is to be very patient. To be patient with people who are growing in Christ 
that may not understand the fullness of Bible truth yet, but who are taking steps. They might be baby steps, but they're taking those steps. Now, the opposite of Naaman, I think, is Nicodemus in Tuesday's lesson. Nicodemus speaks very, very powerfully to one who is, quote, unquote, a worshiper of the true God. Nicodemus represents one who is a Sabbath keeper, tithe payer, health reform, but does know Christ in his heart. But Nicodemus, is, is, his heart is right. Nicodemus is, wants to do what's right. So he comes to Jesus by night. He has this form of religion. He needs a heart transformation. We read Nicodemus's story in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we read Nicodemus's story. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. And here, now we shouldn't condemn him for coming by night. It's a miracle he came at all as a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin and the special ruling group. But he comes and uh, he wants to know how he can receive eternal life. He, he wants to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but he wants to store it in his head. And what Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might have life. Nicodemus sees it for the first time. He wonders, how can a man be born when he's old? And Jesus, can he go back in his mother's womb? And Jesus explains to this teacher how to have eternal life. Nicodemus walks away from that meeting forever changed. And when the Jewish leaders, scribes, and Pharisees argue against the true Christ, Nicodemus defends him. When Jesus dies and his broken, bruised, bloody body is brought off the cross, it's Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea that care for him. So in the story of Nebuchadnezzar, you have a heathen king. In the story of Naaman, you have a heathen person who is sick. In the story of Nicodemus, you have a powerful Jew. So these three men... The three ends, the Nebuchadnezzars, the Naamans, the Nicodemuses, represent vastly different people, but they all have power. They all have a measure of wealth. In every one of them, God reaches. He reaches Nebuchadnezzar through strange judgments that impact him powerfully. He reaches Naaman through leprosy and the healing with Elijah. And he reaches Nicodemus through an encounter with Jesus. But did you notice something else? Who was it that befriended Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel. Who was it that greatly impacted Naaman? Elisha. Who was it that greatly impacted Nicodemus? Jesus. In every one of those instances, you have somebody meeting with that individual, leading them to Christ. In Wednesday's lesson, the story of the rich young ruler. And the story of the rich young ruler Wednesday's lesson is contrasted with the story of Zacchaeus. 
What's the same about both the stories and what's the difference about both of the stories? The same thing about both of these stories is this. They both are wealthy and powerful. But what is the difference? Well, if you look at Matthew, the 19th chapter, you find that the rich young ruler comes to Christ. And as the rich young ruler comes to Christ, he asks the question, what must I do to have eternal life? So he comes to Jesus, Matthew, the 19th chapter, verse 16. Behold, one came and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I might have eternal life? Now notice, where is the emphasis? It's on him. He's rich. He's disciplined. What good thing must I do that I can have eternal life? The response is, if you want life, enter into the, keep the commandments. Jesus says, you shall not murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. What commandments are these? They're the Ten Commandments. So Jesus didn't do away with the Ten Commandments. He quotes them to the rich young ruler. The young ruler says, I've done all these things for my youth. I'm a, I'm a Jew. I'm a righteous Jew. I've done all these things for my, for my youth. So Jesus touches on the plague spot of his character covetousness. And he says to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor. Follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. Jesus knows that this man's heart is covetous for wealth. He knows that his riches have a stranglehold upon his life, that his wealth has shackled him, that he's in the prison of materialism. Jesus knows all that. And as the result of that, this man walks away sorrowful because he has great possessions. The story teaches us this, that we can be chained in the prison of wealth. We can be locked in the chamber of, of materialism. And Jesus calls us to freedom from that. Remember, it's not wrong to have wealth, but it's wrong if wealth controls you and dominates you. Not wrong to have riches, but it's wrong if riches dominate your life. And that becomes the total focus of the life. But the contrast with the rich young ruler, whose story ends up quite sorrowful, is found in Luke 19. And that is the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19. The Sabbath school blessed, and I hadn't really thought about it this much before, brings out this tremendous contrast. In Luke chapter 19, it and you begin there with verses 1 to 10, it talks about the fact that Zacchaeus was the tax collector. And notice what it says in verse 2. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So he tries to find Jesus, verse 3, in the crowd, but he's short. So he climbs up in a tree. Jesus comes by and he knows the honesty of Zacchaeus' heart and he knows the longing of his heart. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree. Come down out of that tree. I'm going to your house today. And he goes to Zacchaeus' house. And as he comes there, verse 9, Jesus says to Zacchaeus, today, salvation has come to this house. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Zacchaeus had come to Christ 
Jesus had shared with him the mysteries of the gospel. Jesus had shared with him how to have peace in his heart, how to be free from condemnation. Jesus had shared with him how to have forgiveness and how to change his life. And Zacchaeus repents and he says to him, I give my life to you, Lord. And I will give my goods to the poor. Look what he says here. It's really remarkable. Verse 8. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And I've take, if I've taken anything from, from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Zacchaeus' heart was at a different place than the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was covetous. He had a plague spot in his heart and he walked away. Zacchaeus said, look, I've come to Jesus. I don't want my wealth controlling me or dominating my life. I want to give. I want to give half my goods to the poor. I want to, if I've defrauded anybody or cheated anybody, I want to give them back fourfold of what I've taken. What's the great lesson here for our Sabbath school class? Whether we have wealth or we don't, whether we have power or influence or we don't, there is a lesson to us, and the lesson is focus. What are you focusing on in your life? Are you focusing upon service and blessing others, or are you focusing on getting for yourself? Our lesson comes to an end with Thursday and Friday. Thursday's lesson is called Mission to the Powerful. And there's one powerful man. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. We see him once only in the Gospels. He appears quickly and suddenly, and he goes off the scene. But this man, Joseph of Arimathea, who we see in all four Gospels, which is quite surprising. You don't see a lot of stories in every one of the Gospels. But in Matthew chapter 27, verse 57 to 60, Matthew 27, verse 57 to 60, we read about this Joseph of Arimathea. It says, now when evening, verse 57, had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had become a follower of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission to get the body of Jesus. And Joseph takes him, takes the body of Christ, and he lays it in a tomb that he had cut for himself. That's what Isaiah's prophecy, remember, prophesied that Jesus would die among thieves but be buried with the rich. So Joseph was used of God to fulfill Bible prophecy. When we look at the people we've studied about today, Nicodemus, an ancient Babylonian king who comes to Christ, Naaman, a Syrian powerful official who comes to Christ, Nicodemus, a rich Jew who comes to Christ. Rich young ruler walks away. Zacchaeus, wealthy Jew, comes to Christ. Joseph of Arimathea comes on the scene, comes to Christ. He has been a follower of Jesus. I'm sure that Nicodemus, who was one of his friends, had witnessed to him. And here you have those two men participating in fulfilling Bible prophecy at the, burial, at the burial of Jesus Christ, we can expect the rich and the powerful who have great needs for joy, for peace, for fulfillment and purpose 
to come into Christ. Ellen White, Ministry of Healing, last paragraph on Friday's lesson. Much is said concerning our duty to the neglected poor. Should not some attention be given to the neglected rich? Many look upon this class as hopeless. Thousands of wealthy men have gone to their graves unwarned, but indifferent as they may appear, many among the rich are soul burdened. Ministry of Healing, page 210. Many among the rich are soul burdened. Do not pass by powerful, influential, wealthy people around you. Ask God to give you the wisdom to reach them in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to minister to the needy, the poor, the helpless, the hopeless, and also the wealthy, the influential, the powerful. Lord, enable us to sense your grace, to sense your power. Oh, Father, may we be faithful to you in the commission you've given us. Give us eyes to see everyone around us as a candidate for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot org.